Well, good morning, everyone. Congratulations, you sprung forward. I suppose you wanted to spring back once you saw the winter, I suppose. Like, what's winter coming in the middle of March? When was the last time that occurred? Anyways, my name's Rocky. Uh, my family attend. We're members here at the church. Actually, we attend, our children attend, our grandchildren attend, our parents attend. So, a uh, real privilege to be here and to gather in the midst of kind of the conclusion of our series. My very first pastorate was uh, Leslie and Shepherd area, a little small chapel on Bamberg Circle. Now, it's very, very interesting because the way that the chapel sat in this residential area, on the, t- on the east side was a long curl of the circle, and on the west side, it was a short little tucking into the chapel, into the church. Actually, interesting enough, I think there I may be even here. Some of my original youth staff are here attending Springvale, and so we go back 30-plus years. So one particular day as I was driving, I ended up going on the east side, which was the long route. And so I was in my Jeep, and I was driving down the long route, and I was kind of minding my own thing. This is pre-cell phones, everyone, so, you know, you're just kind of making my way around the long term. And out of the corner of my eye, two young children come running towards my Jeep. They were playing on their lawn, and they come running towards my Jeep. And my initial reaction was to, I was, was too afraid. So I, I veered away from them, and they're screaming and yelling. I look up, and I see something in the middle of the road. And I, and I then turn, and I could feel a little bump, and I go forward, and I slam on my brakes, and I jump out of the car, and these kids are wailing and crying hysterically. And I look down, and I see a cat. And as the hysteria starts to just grow, the mother comes bounding out of the house and she's screaming at the top of her lungs and her kids are all crying and she's screaming and she's yelling, what? The cat sleeps in the middle of the road. What were you doing? And I'm trying to explain to her what was happening and they're all crying and now I'm crying. And she scoops up the cat and I'm saying, hey, listen, I'm a pastor at the end of the church. It didn't really mean much and off they went into their house. I wish there was a great redemptive part to this story. Like, hey, I went back and they came to Jesus. And I, I actually avoided them because I was deeply embarrassed, which is extremely sad at that junction of my life. But it's interesting. The kids come bounding out to distract me. Actually not, to, to help me. So that I would not see this, their cat sleeping in the middle of the road. And the distraction caused me to be distracted. And move in such a way to have the outcome that none of us wanted. Which was the dude in the jeep hitting the, the cat. Let me ask you this question. What do you think... What do you think is the greatest threat to faith today? Is it hedonism? Is it hurry? Is it busyness? Andrew Sullivan in his book that he wrote, I Used to Be a Human Being, said the greatest threat to faith today is distraction. It's distraction. 
So the question is, what is distracting you into spiritual oblivion? What's distracting our church? What's your cultural narcotic that you use that's distracting you today? Is it Instagram? Is it Amazon? Are you on a first name basis with your driver that comes to your door every day with an Amazon package? Is it Twitter? Is it alcohol? Is it porn? What is distracting you? What's the cultural narcotic that's distracting you today? And what's distracting the church? Is it politics? Is it the fact that we're a social organization? It's distraction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that we not be distracted. Holy Spirit, guide us. Guard our hearts and minds. I pray that the things that I say, that whatever comes from me, you would strike it from our minds. But whatever comes from you, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, and that we respond to you according to your word and your desires. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Renewal has been the theme. The Greek word actually is unaneu, which literally means to refresh or to revive. And to an individual, it's the, in, it's the constri- inner construction that begins. But to the church, it's this refreshing and this renewing of a body. And so this theme of renewal is incredibly important because the church and faith is caused and is influenced by so many different distractions today. So maybe church. And please, when I say church, it's not a building. You didn't come to a building called church. You are the church. The building doesn't get renovated, although it may. (laughs) But we need to be renovated. We need to be renewed. We need to be revived. Because we're a body, functional body of Christ called the church. Now the wonderful thing about this and the wisdom of our leadership is they said, hey, Let's look and go back to the beginning. Let's go back to where it all began in the book of Acts. And so we studied the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, there's a distinct distinction as the writer Luke is writing this chronological story of the history of the church. And why do we go back to the beginning? I have the privilege, once a week... To take my granddaughter, Kaya, who's two and a half years old. And a friend of mine owns a skating rink in Newmarket. And so at lunchtime, I gather her, two and a half years old, and I go to this little rink and I teach her how to skate. 
Why, do I take her there and kind of push her on the ice and let her go and just you know, do your thing? No, I actually have to take her right from the beginning. Putting on her skates, standing on the thing, walking on the ice with Grandpa. Grandpa's holding her and she moves and her little feet start wanting to go and she'll slip and fall, and, but I hold her. You see, I have to take her back to the basics to fully understand what's going on. Now, the interesting thing about the church is we don't need to do that because we've been functionally a part of it for a period of time. Whether you're new here and you're checking this thing out or whether you've been here for a long period of time, we have some kind of basic understanding of the concept. But we've been drifting and distracted. And so the leadership says, let's go back to the basics and see what happened at the beginning. And maybe there's something in there for us today. And so the writer of the book of Acts, Luke says, well, let me tell you about what happened. So in chapter 1, we read this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Luke gives this framework. And if you want to understand the book of Acts, highlight this. Because the first 10 chapters move us through this experience. What's it like to be the church and how it got started in Jerusalem? What's it like and how it's going to be influenced in Samaria? What's, it, what's going to happen, sorry, in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts? And the first 10 chapters tell us that story. And so the writer, because Luke's a historian, writes this chronology in such a way, but inside of it is the richness and the fullness of where we at Springvale need to be renewed. We need not be distracted with the cultural narcotics that drag us away and away from what God is commanding us to do, not just here on Sunday, but throughout the week. Why? Because in chapter 2, what happens... The Spirit of God comes down with power in the day of Pentecost. And the Jerusalem church is born. And as Peter starts preaching, people are converted. 3,000. And then in Acts chapter 242, we see these values that permeate every church across the land. Uses Acts chapter 242 and says, these are the values of what a church should be. And what does it say in Acts 242? Our values here at Springvale are written based on this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Not sleepiness. Not raggedness, because we're up all night with Netflix. But with awe. All the believers would gather together and put all the possessions in common, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. That's the church. There's no building there. They gathered together daily. Now it's very interesting. They were meeting in the temples. But you need to know your church history. And we're going to hear this. 
and I'll, I'll get, well, I'm a little ahead of myself, but I'm going to tell you this because I'm excited about the concept. Because we still think it's a building here. We're going to meet someone in, someone in Samaria that we know going back to John chapter 4 when, when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman and says to her, hey, you want to be a true worshiper? And she goes, yes, I'd like to be a true worshiper. She's a Samaritan. She goes, we worship in the temple in Samaria. And you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And she didn't know at the time, Jesus said, to be a true worshiper, you need to worship in spirit and in truth. It's not a building. Why is that so interesting? Because if you understood your history, in 30-some years, the Romans would come and destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And then four years later, they would march north, and they would destroy the temple in Samaria. There was no building. But the church gathered. And here we are in chapter 2. And when we read this, my hope is that your heart is longing, is being renewed with the unity of the spirit of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit seen in Acts chapter 2. That's where it all began. And then in Acts chapter 3, what do you see? In Acts chapter 3, you see something really interesting. Because as they gathered together, they started to spread out. And Peter starts to preach and starts to heal. And he starts outside of that preaching to onlookers. And people are hearing and converted. But as he is preaching, what starts to happen? Grumbling and mumbling in the movement of persecution. Then you get to chapter 4. And as the Jerusalem church is growing... Peter, gets called, Peter and John get called before the Sanhedrin. So the broader leadership. And now as they're preaching again, they get brought before the, before the Sanhedrin and they're preaching and then all of a sudden they talk about this prayer and they get, they get attacked and, and flogged. But it didn't matter because in the middle of 4 it says all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. And they shared everything. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And much grace was upon them. You see, preaching begins to bring persecution. And they didn't just stay in Jerusalem. They were moving to Judea. But then he hit chapter 5. Why did we hit chapter 5? Ed does an amazing job. As we hit chapter 4, they're saying we've gathered everything together. We're, we're pulling our possessions. We're giving. And then all of a sudden we bump into Annas and Annas and Sapphire. And what did they do? They lied to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead. The Jerusalem church was a great place to be, wasn't it? It was happening. It was the church that was so vibrant. You couldn't lie and disguise and be drifted. And distracted. And so in five, the apostles then go back and they're called before not just the Sanhedrin, but now they're called before the Sadducee. And before the Sadducee, Peter preaches again and he gets flogged in five. Well, what do you see at the end of five? He gets flogged and is saved somewhat by Gamaliel, who actually says inside to the, to the, the council, we need not to withhold ourselves from the things of God. 
And then verse 41, at the end of 5, what does it say? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had counted it worthy of suffering the disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts, from home to home, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Doesn't that give you chills? Because preaching brings persecution. And the persecution that happened to their Lord is starting to happen in the church. Why? Because the church was being the church. Distraction was coming to tear it apart and separate it. But they held together in unity and love. And in the mission and the values. And the intent and content of what it is to be a community of faith and a body of Christ. And what happened? They rejoiced in the persecution. And then what what happens? We pick it up in chapter 6. What's so interesting about 6, and Ed was talking about it, but I want to capture two little things, because 6 influences 7 and 8. And so last week we heard about the deacons, they're building up the church staff, and there were seven, the, the seven who were called. And in seven, two names are really prominent there. There is Stephen, who was full of wisdom in the spirit. And also Philip. And if you read, you know that seven and eight are about Stephen and Philip. And so as six occurs, and we feel this sense of the choosing of the deacons, and we see these significant followers, and as we move into seven... This deacon. And I know what you're thinking. He's probably, hey, okay, what am I, the janitor at the temple? What am I going to, like, all of a sudden, no, Stephen. You're going to go into Judea. And the Spirit of God moves him into Judea. And he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. The longest sermon. And he, I'm talking, if you think, he goes so hard at the leadership. He takes them back to the beginning and he walks all the way through how they, how the Jewish nation killed all the prophets. And as he moves through time and they would know the scriptures, as he moved through time, the Sadducees were hearing this. And then he says, not only did you do that, you killed John the Baptist. And then you killed our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 754, it says this. They were, they heard this and they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth. So I want to help you understand this picture. Here's this Stephen. First ministry call, preaches this unbelievable sermon, the lengthiest sermon. We knew he was a man of the spirit. Who probably just, hey, first church hire, hey, this is pretty cool. Preaches this sermon and an eruption occurs. And what happened then is everyone would have gathered in the temple. Because this is what it reads. And that, that crowd would slowly push him out of the temple. And as they pushed him out of the temple, they moved him down the road. And then you take him to an edge of a cliff and he would fall. And as they were doing that, the crowd would pick up stones 
And as he fell and would be hurt, they would then start to throw stones at him. And as the stones would hit his body and start breaking it, and start breaking it, and start breaking it, I want you to read this part. Because a lot of people don't catch it. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and now the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That's an unbelievable statement. Why? Because Jesus always sits at the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus standing? Why has he come to the edge to see Stephen being stoned? What causes our Lord to stand? Theologians talk about it. Maybe this is when the repentance would come of the Jews. And if they repented, then the Christ would come. The Messiah could come. Is that it? Or is it the fact that he knew what was going to happen to Stephen, the very first martyr of the church? And he was watching because he loved Stephen. And he loves the church. And he was seeing that it was functioning because he's the head. And the church is the body. And he was seeing that one of his fingers is broken. And our Lord is standing. I can just see it. And then he says and prays this amazing prayer. What does it say? Lord, forgive them. Lord, forgive them. You see, preaching leads to persecution. Our, church, our time is coming in the Western church. One of the reasons why we're being distracted, we're being distracted from preaching. I know what you're thinking. Oh yeah, but that's why we come here to hear Ed. No, Ed doesn't preach. He teaches. He teaches. You see, that's what the scriptures were saying. They gathered together and they heard the the apostles teaching in Jerusalem. But when you get to 8-1, we now get, we now, we now see in 7, we, we are in the midst of this gathering together and when they were stoning Stephen, we are introduced to this man named Saul and everyone throws the authority of their cloaks before Saul's feet. Obviously, he commanded the death of Stephen. And then in 8-1, we pick up this new scene. What happened? The apostle Paul, or sorry, Saul, ravages the church. He starts to go door to door to door to find those who believe, men and women, persecuting the church to throw them in jail. And God, in this infinite understanding, no, is this the spirit of God that creates diaspora? Why? Because the Jerusalem church was really happening. It was a great place to be, and we love being there. And they moved out slightly to Judea. But if we go back to Acts 1.8, what did it say? What's their responsibility? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. What's intriguing about 8.1 is when the dispersion went, what did it say? People started to flee. Now, they weren't running for their lives. 
I think maybe they got one eight. <laughs> the Spirit of God just to use the world in a little nudge to get them going. And what does it say in eight, eight, in the eight eight through two three? As they went, they were preaching along the way. So that's interesting. If the apostles are teaching and we come on Sunday to be taught, what is preaching? And why are all these people? Because it's not the pros preaching. It's everyone. And it's not on Sunday. It's as they were going. So here's a wonderful definition of preaching. It's teaching truth through personality. And that's the responsibility of all believers. See, on Sunday, we gather to get taught the Word of God. Apostles teaching. But the mandate and responsibility for us is to go out and preach the Word of God. Teach truth through personality. You're not me and I'm not you. The Holy Spirit speaks through you and and to you in your distinction of your personality so that as you are going, you're capable and able to preach. So before we move into eight, let me summarize seven for us. Because seven is jarring. The very first martyr. And I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking the same thing. Guess what I was thinking? Man, this guy's got it all together. Man, Stephen's got a great future in, in preaching and teaching, man. And then all of a sudden he preaches one sermon and he's one and done. Seriously, Lord, Why? Why would you do that? Man, he's a hero. But the world doesn't need a hero. It needs a savior. Our world doesn't need a hero. It needs a savior. And if Stephen was here, he even stated it. All throughout the persecution, it was telling about Jesus, about Jesus, about Jesus. There's no celebrity here. There's no celebrity pastor. There's just a man who surrenders himself to God, and God uses him, one and done, the first martyr, because he's not, it's not about being a hero for God. The world doesn't need a hero. It needs a savior. That's how the church is renewed. Falling back in love with our Savior. Not distracted by all these things, but focusing on the fact that our Savior died for us. And he was calling the Jew to repent. And it's significant in its language. But now you move to the 8th chapter. And in the 8th chapter, we get now, we pick up another name from chapter 6. And the other name from chapter 6 is this guy called Philip, a deacon. Now, as Saul is persecuting the church and this dispora occurs, Philip now gets himself all of a sudden to Samaria. Isn't that interesting? Eight, so Acts 1.8 says, hey, you need to go here. There's a little bit of real great times in Jerusalem, but persecution starts happening, an explosion and dispora occurs. So now we get to Samaria. We're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. And all of a sudden, Philip's in Samaria. And why does Luke, in the, in the end of 8, he tells two stories. He tells about what was happening in Samaria, and then what happens to an Ethiopian eunuch. And if your mind is thinking like mine, you're going, oh, interesting. 
Judea, Samaria, and an Ethiopian eunuch on his way home to the outermost parts of the world. So what's interesting about the preaching to this, this man that we're introduced to, the Simon Magus. So as, as things are happening in the church, in Samaria, and people are being converted, he confronts, is confronted by a man named si, Simon Magus. And Simon Magus was interesting because he followed and enjoyed this, but he was well known in that area as, as, a, as a magician. We're not talking in our terms, but it's a mixture of a wide variety of things. And some say he's the, even the father, the father of Gnosticism. Let me read, read you this. Because when you're wondering about his conversion, or is it a conversion, all these other things, this is John of Damascus. This is his writing about Simon Magus. So an early, early church father. The Simeons stem from Simon Magus, who lived in the time of the apostle Peter, who was a native of the village of Gidda in Samaria. This man was a Samaritan of origin and became a Christian in name only. He taught a filthy obscenity of promiscuity, bodily incourse. He rejected the resurrection and affirmed that the universe was not created by God. He furthermore gave his disciples for adoration a likeness of himself as Zeus and of a harlot named Helen, who was his companion as Athena. To the Samaritans, he said he was their father. To the Jew, he said he was the Christ. So now in summary, all of a sudden he shows up and he's following Philip along because he had this power over Samaria. And I suspect is that people were leaving his little cult and coming and following the way. And as a result of this, he, he, Philip says, hey, I need some help. So, Pe- so John and Peter come up and they confront Simon. And he talks about, and they watch and witness the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, hey, can I buy it? The Holy Spirit. That's where we get our word simonry. And if you know a little bit of church history, you know what does what simonry mean? It means that we actually purchase relig- religious positions. And in the early church, in certain segments of Christianity, that was really rampant. Multiple popes, etc. And so all of a sudden now we get into eight, and we see this rejection of Simon. We know a little bit of his history, but then all of a sudden we get into the end, and we get, we get to, Philip gets a movement of the Spirit that says, hey, you need to go. And so he goes. And along the way, he's pointed out to see this Ethiopian, and he jumps and sees the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian obviously is a convert, he's a eunuch. He's in the courts of Candace, and Candace is, is, is not a name, it's actually a responsibility. So the Ethiopians, the king was like a demigod, and the queen at Candace would manage and administrate everything, and he was in the court of this Candace, of this queen. He obviously was converted at some point because he had a portion of Isaiah. And as he was traveling along in this massive chariot, Philip is, is, is moved to go beside him, hears him, and asks him the question, what are you reading and what does is, what is the eunuch say? I don't know, but I'd really like to know if someone could teach me. And he goes, man, I can. And he jumps into this. And Philip starts preaching, teaching. And the man is converted. And then after he goes, hey, can I be baptized? And he goes, yeah, there's some water there. They stop the chariot and out they go. And he gets baptized and then Philip departs to go on to preach some more. But it says the Ethiopian eunuch was filled with joy. And the church exploded again. Now, going back to this man named Saul... What do we know? In chapter 9, guess what happens? He gets converted on the road to Emmaus. Jesus 
confronts him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Now that takes us back into seven when he would have heard the prayer of Stephen. And what do we know about Saul? He then gets converted and becomes the Apostle Paul and goes on to write almost almost all the New Testament. And he is this missionary that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. What a story, isn't it? How do we drift from that? How do we get distracted from that? We are a part of the living body of Christ. What's interesting is the, Lord, the world doesn't need a leader or a celebrity pastor. It needs a Lord. It needs someone when the Lord says, go, you go. That's what Philip did. He didn't wait for the pastor to tell him. He didn't wait for it. The Spirit of God said, Philip, go. And he went. You see, the world doesn't need another leader. It needs a Lord. And the church doesn't need another leader. It needs us to surrender to the Lord. And when we understand that the Savior and the Lord is the same, those then who are sitting here who do not believe, what does this mean to you? If you're listening, Stephen is saying this to you. Don't look to me to be a hero. You need a savior. Renewal is for you. It's a regeneration to become new. That's the gospel. Repent for your sins before God separate you. Receive the death and resurrection of Christ as savior to be born anew. You see, the world doesn't need another hero. It needs a savior. And if you're listening here and you're a Christian and you've been distracted, and maybe this is, a, this is to the church, if you've been distracted into spiritual oblivion, do not look or wait for a leader, but you need to surrender to the Lord. It's time for renewal. It's time for renewal. Springvale, we need to be refreshed. Time is coming, a time has come that the true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. The desire of a rich experience of being the church. Isn't that what we want? Really? No pretense? Isn't that what we want? Man, I want that. I have it every Thursday night. I've been in a Bible study every Thursday night with my father-in-law and all his children and grandchildren. And we lead this Bible study from 18 to 88. And we studied the book of Corinthians, one chapter a week. Book of Corinthians, or Romans, Corinthians, and we're now in chapter 13 of John. And we're all over the world. His kids are all over the world. Pastors, military, students, married, all over the world. And every Thursday, we, we richly divide the scriptures together open up our hearts in prayer in this small group, intergenerational, all over the world, to try to see this sense of renewing. 
God, what do you have for us? And I'm going to say this to you. We're in John chapter 12 a week ago. And my father-in-law, who was a great, great Christian leader, and as his body is breaking, the spiritual person is still alive. And he always closes our time in prayer. And he said to everyone, because we focused on the good news, what's the gospel? What's the good news? And 12. He says, I'm going to pray every day for all of you that you all get a chance to share the gospel over the next two weeks. Here was my chance. See, that's the church. That's the church. What we do here is just cake on Sunday. Let me read this and then I'll close and I apologize. I'm a little over. Let me read this in a way for Springvale. Now, Springville, when you hear this, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Jesus Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who received his word were baptized, and that day they added 3,000. So they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taken a place through the apostles and to all those who believed were together and all these things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together in gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added to their number daily. Amen.